Job chapter 2, 11 through 13. Hear, for this is the word of the Lord. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Suffering is something that all of mankind has in common. Just like to be man is to be tempted, so also to be man is also to suffer. Suffering is a universal dilemma. But at the same time, suffering is also unique. It is unique to the person who is suffering. And since it is unique, suffering often leads to loneliness. As we transition to a new scene again, Job is all alone. His cattle and livestock were all stolen. His servants were killed. And all of his ten children died as a result of a natural disaster. After the four messengers who brought him the bad news are all gone. And now his wife, who tried to convince Job to give up, is gone as well. And you know who else is gone? Or better, no longer mentioned in the story of Job? Is Satan. But he is still present and he will visit Job in the form of his three friends. But he won't use them right away. Uh, Much like he did with Jesus after he tempted him. He departed from Job until an opportune time. So for now, Job is left all alone. But when verse 11 opens up, months have gone by. And Job is still suffering from the pain of his skin disease. And the emotional pain that comes from mourning the loss of his children. He is all alone sitting on a landfill pile, a pile of trash, a garbage dump, scraping the largest organ of his body, his skin, because it was covered by sores. He was all alone with his physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pain. Imagine what he was thinking as months have gone by. But look who shows up. We are introduced to Job's three friends. Now, without getting ahead of ourselves, today we will focus on who they were, what were their motives in coming to see Job, and what did they do when they actually saw Job. Now, for those of us who are familiar with the story of Job, we shouldn't project onto Job's three friends what we know of them later on in the book just yet. Uh, We should take verse 11 at face value before we move to judgment on Job's three friends. 
Because the first thing to notice about Job's three friends was that they were true friends. They were sincere, they were wise, and they were compassionate. So first, they were true friends. See, to be a friend in that time period was not what we consider as friends today. Most of our friends are really just acquaintances, if that. To be a friend in ancient times in that region of the world meant that you were bound together with steadfast love, much like uh, David and Jonathan, as it says that their souls were knit together and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Uh, This is a love much like the covenant love that God has for his people, a love that led friends to stick together through thick and thin. True friendship demanded loyalty, honesty, and kindness. And true friendship, just like now, were few and far between. We read this in Proverbs 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we see this in Job's three friends. It would have taken a few months for word about Job's calamity to reach Job's friends. But once they heard the news of all the evil that had come upon Job, they made an appointment together to visit their friend traveling from far lands, each traveling from his own place. And this is important when considering the character of Job's three friends. Here we are given their names and their tribal relations. We, we do not know of their exact origins, but these names give us a hint of their possible lineage. Because names back then, much like now, were passed down from generation to generation. His first friend mentioned has a familiar name, and that is Eliphaz, the Temanite. Both his name and his tribal name ought to remind us of Esau the son of Isaac, who did not inherit the promise of God. Esau had a son named Eliphaz, and Eliphaz had a son named Teman. This uh, would all make sense because where Job lives, which is Uz, is located where Esau's people would later settle, known as Edom. And the land of Edom in scripture is also referred to as Teman. So Eliphaz was most likely an Edomite. Uh, But we're not sure if this is the same Eliphaz, the son of Esau, or if this is a descendant of Teman. I would guess the latter uh, would make more sense since he is called a Temanite. And the reason why this is important concerning Job's story is because Edom was known for their wise men. Now the background story for the other two friends are a little more unclear. There is Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite. There is a possibility that Bildad is a descendant of Shua, the son of Abraham and Keturah. And since Shua was not the child of the promise, meaning he was not Isaac, he was sent to the east country, possibly near Edom as well. So he was also a man of the east. And finally, the lineage of Zophar the Namathite 
is even more unclear. There is a Nema who was a descendant of Cain, the sister of Tubal-Cain, and Cain and his descendants would also settle east of Eden. There are other Nemas mentioned in scripture, but this lineage makes more sense considering the timeline. The other Nemas mentioned come after the time of Job. So we can conclude based on their names and the names of their tribes, they were all men of the east. And throughout the scriptures, if you are of the east, you have the reputation of being full of wisdom. So these were wise men or sages. These were princes in their stature, wearing stately robes, much like Job did. Now the question is, what kind of wise men were they? They had wisdom, but what kind of wisdom? See, there is godly wisdom, and then there is worldly wisdom. Oftentimes, worldly wisdom sounds godly. It may even mention God or spiritual things, but yet it is not really godly wisdom. And worldly wisdom does and can overlap with godly wisdom at times, but at times they do not. So whatever kind of wisdom they had, was it sufficient to guide and direct Job? Godly wisdom is the knowledge of God applied. But as the story unfolds, we will see that these men had a knowledge of God, but they had problems with applying that knowledge correctly. They would go on to misrepresent God. And this can be a heavy burden to whomever you seek to counsel. We can't just rely on, well, God said it. We have all heard it before. I would say, well, Satan quoted scripture, but he misused it. This is why we ought to be careful and try not to apply scripture willy-nilly because it may lead to a lot of damage. So his friends are true friends. They are wise friends. Thirdly, their motives were in the right place. They considered it a priority to visit their friend Job in his suffering. They left each from their own place and they somehow arranged that they would meet and arrive there together. The more the merrier, or so they thought. But why were they going there? Well, first, to show him sympathy. Now, there is sympathy and then there is empathy. Sympathy is slightly different than empathy. Empathy is having an understanding of how someone else feels. Maybe you went through something similar and you are able uh, to share in their suffering a little bit more naturally. Memories are coming back to you and you are able to hurt with that person. While sympathy is to feel pity for the other person's situation and you're seeking to share in the other person's sorrow while knowing all along you've never been through what they've been through. And you're probably a bit relieved that you haven't. So they went to show him sympathy. They wanted to find a way to share 
in his suffering. This will be important as the story develops. Also, secondly, they went to comfort him. Now, comfort is the flip side to sympathy. Sympathy and empathy does not involve much action. It can involve just sitting with the sufferer, embracing him or her, holding their hand, and weeping with that person. While comfort requires action. It requires us to speak and say something that will help the person who is suffering change their mind and heart about their situation. For the Christian, it is to speak the word of God to their hearts. It doesn't have to be word for word, but it it is to communicate God's promises to the one who is suffering. And we get this example from God himself, who says, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. How? Well, through speaking, as he goes on to say, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Then he follows this with his promises, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. It takes the form of speaking. But also, comfort can take the form of prayer. Paul tells the Corinthians that God our Father is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may comfort others with the comfort that comes from God. Then a few verses later, after he describes all the affliction that he endured, he tells them that they must help him by praying for him. Because the greatest comfort anyone can receive is from God our Father. That is the greatest comfort we would ever be able to receive. And prayer works. Let us not forget that prayer works So to show sympathy and comfort was their motive in going to visit Job. Remember, these friends were true friends. They were not just Facebook friends. Right? That is the deception of social media. Because it gives us this illusion that we have more friends than we actually do. Right? I know people who have like a thousand friends. But how many of them are true friends? Friends that are there through thick and thin. Uh, I remember when I was in my 20s, I received some advice from some very wise people in my life who are often called parents. I, I know not all parents are wise, but thankfully mine were. And they would observe my life and tell me, you have a lot of friends now, but consider your situation. You're single. You have a job, which means you have money. You have a car to drive them around, to party and to go places. You're in good health. But as soon as all of that is gone, you'll soon find out who are your true friends. And that is what we see in Job's friends. They weren't only there for him when times were good. They weren't only there when he was rich and famous. They weren't only there to use his glorious property when they wanted to get away. They were true friends who were there when there was trouble. And at this point, 
Their motives were sincere. But would their friendship, their form of wisdom, and their version of sympathy be enough to comfort Job? Because motives do lead to actions, and sometimes our actions are not what you would expect them to be, because as the story develops, motives change, and so do our actions, and they do not always align with the original intent. It's like in times of confrontation, whatever the confrontation is about, maybe you feel like someone who is a friend is purposely ignoring you, And you're in the dangerous position of putting the pieces of the story together. Filling in the blanks with a host of assumptions until you think you have figured out the whole story. You have figured out that the person had malicious intent and how they are against you. So you come up with a whole script in your mind with what you're going to say to that person. You're going to lay down the law. Then when it comes time to the confrontation... The full story comes out and you were completely ignorant of how much your friend was going through. And that script that you so thoughtfully and carefully prepared has been dumped into the trash compartment of your mind. And you feel as small as Jiminy Cricket, but with a silenced conscience without a word to speak. When you saw your friend, you didn't expect what they were going to say. I was diagnosed with cancer. My mother died. I've been battling with lifelong depression that no one knows about. It wasn't about you. It wasn't about me? Well, everything's about me. Right? Now, they knew that Job was suffering, yet this is similar to what happened to Job's three friends. Because what they found out when they saw Job was not what they expected, and so their intent and plans changed. And we know this by their reaction. What did they find and how did they react? And when they saw Job from a distance, sitting on a pile of trash, covered in sores, scraping himself with broken pottery, they did not recognize him. Many of us may relate to the same experience of seeing a friend or a loved one after they have gone through a long battle with disease and they no longer look like their old selves. There is an immediate shock and we'd say, is that him? It can't be. It can't be. They didn't recognize him, much like another sufferer who would later be scourged to the point that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. We're not exactly sure how they knew it was him or his location. Maybe some locals guided them in that direction and they were told he had been on a large garbage pile for months, but however they found out, their reaction would not line up well with their original intent. Consider the situation. Due to Job's sores, there was no warm embrace of sympathy or even a friendly handshake. And from Job, there was no welcoming smile nor a home for Job to welcome them into. There were no more family feasts, He went from being a great man to a man who was stripped of everything. Even his bodily appearance was unrecognizable. He lost his property, his farm, his children, and his purpose in life. Imagine the look on Job's face and the glassy look in his eyes. 
He was a broken man with an empty soul. And their first reaction was that they burst into tears. It wasn't just a lonely, sympathizing tear. It says they not only cried with their eyes, but they also cried with their mouths. And they raised their voices and wept. They were weeping and wailing. It was an intense and deep form of weeping. They weren't just crying reservedly. I am personally familiar with this sort of weeping. In my family's culture, which has elements of Jewish and African cultures blended together, funerals were not a pleasant thing to go to growing up, nor should they be. At times you can hear the weeping and wailing from the parking lot of the funeral parlor. They weren't just crying with their eyes, but also with their mouths as if they were pouring out their souls over someone who has just died. And that is not all. Like Job, they tore their robes, which symbolized their status, and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. This means they grabbed the dirt or dust of the ground and threw it up in the air so it would land back on their heads. This was all a sign of mourning. Dust symbolizes mortality and death, going back to when God cursed man because of sin and said, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is why you'll hear at a burial, the minister will say, Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And to further symbolize this, it says, And they sat with him on the ground, the ground made of the dust of death, seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They sat on the ground to identify themselves with Job and his suffering, as the ground is the closest you can get to the grave. After the sack of Jerusalem, it says in Lamentations chapter 2, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads. They were mourning over what took place. Now many of you may be thinking to yourself, well, it does seem like they were sympathizing with him, sitting in silence. And it is true that sitting in silence... And being present is often the best form of comfort. For some reason, Christians feel like we always have to say something when we're visiting someone who is suffering. But sometimes, silence is better than speaking. Sometimes it is better to just sit in silence and just be there. But that is a bit different than what's going on here. This goes beyond just showing sympathy. This goes beyond weeping with those who weep. Because they weren't weeping with Job. They were weeping at Job. Job's friends have turned into Job's mourners. They were mourning as if he was already dead. That's why they sat on the ground. It's over for Job. They gave up. 
There was nothing they could do for him. It was too late. All they had to do was call the undertaker and have him pull up the hearse to take Job away. Listen to their reaction again when they saw him from a distance. They didn't recognize him. So they responded with weeping and wailing. They tore their robes. They placed dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. This is what Joseph did when his father Jacob died. Just read Genesis chapter 50. That is a good picture of what grieving looked like in the ancient world. This is what the people of Israel did when they mourned the death of Saul. They mourned for seven days. This was the custom in their region. And for seven days, they did not speak a word of comfort to him. Because why would you speak to a corpse? Now they may have had sincere sympathy for Job, but things didn't go as planned. And their intent to comfort Job went out the window. We know this because the next person to say anything will not be Job's friends, but Job himself. What makes it all the more hurtful was that as his friends, they had a unique opportunity to speak a word of comfort and ease his tormented thoughts. They had a greater advantage to speak to Job and he'd listen, but instead they were silent. And the next time they speak, they will misrepresent God and misapply his word. This makes it even more lonely for Job. You think he was lonely before. Now after his friends sit with him in silence, ignoring him for seven days, the best word of comfort that comes from their lips is that it was all his fault. Sounds like much of what passes for Christian counseling today. Now, the lesson here is not that we should never have any friends because it is no use. These were true friends. They had good intentions. They came together so that they could visit their friend who was in need. They had all the resources because they were wise according to the world. But one thing we must remember is that although suffering is universal, it is also unique. Sufferers tend to suffer alone An illness cuts us off from others. Just think over the last few years, COVID isolated a lot of people. Also think of when you have the flu or the common cold and how even mild cases of illness can cut us off from others. Now consider the more serious illnesses. Suffering leads to loneliness. Think of those who have lost their children. Only the parents feel that kind of sorrow for the rest of their earthly lives. Think of those who have lost their wives or husbands. The widows and the widowers share a unique sense of pain. This reminds me of the old black spiritual. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Glory, hallelujah. Sometimes I'm up. Sometimes I'm down. Oh, yes, Lord. Sometimes I'm almost to the ground. Oh, yes, Lord. Oh, every day to you I pray. 
Oh yes, Lord. For you to drive my sins away. Oh yes, Lord. Nobody knows but the sufferer. Because the truth is, even our friends will not be able to comfort us unless it is a comfort from our Heavenly Father. Jesus told his disciples, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The word helper can also be translated as intercessor or consoler. He is a comforter. And how does he help? How does he comfort? A few moments later, Jesus would say, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He helps and comforts through Christ's word. Then he continues to comfort them by saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What is more comforting than the word of God being spoken into our lives and situation? What is more comforting than hearing God and his blessing and peace upon you? If we're not comforted by that, we'll never be comforted. But this lonely sufferer by the name of Job also foreshadows a greater sufferer, the suffering servant. Listen to the author of Hebrews. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. It was in this occasion that Jesus acknowledged that he was alone and that the road to the cross was a lonely road. When Jesus brought his three closest disciples, his closest friends, Peter, James, and John to the Garden of Gethsemane so that he could pray, he told them, remain here and watch with me. He explained how he was very sorrowful even to death because of what he was about to endure on the cross and he expected his friends to watch and pray with him. But he would return to them three times to find them sleeping. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? He would weep and pray alone. In fact, his entire life of humiliation He would be alone, though he was surrounded by many disciples. Why? Well, because he was unique. And his suffering was unique. That same night, his friends would flee when it was time for him to be arrested. The next day, he would be falsely accused and condemned to death. He would suffer alone. He would be stripped of his clothing, scourged to the point that you can no longer recognize him. He would be nailed to a cross. And while on that cross, his closest friends and disciples were nowhere to be found. Even his mother was standing at a distance as there was nothing that she could do for him. But his greatest point of suffering was when he cried out, My God, my God. 
Why have you forsaken me? Then he cried out one last cry, breathed his last, and died. And that, beloved, was all for us. That was for us. That was so that we would never be alone in our suffering. He reassures his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promises here that no matter how lonely you feel in your suffering or in your grief, the truth of the gospel says that you are never truly alone. His peace and his presence abides with you forever. Amen.